and uh, Pastor Mike's away, and uh, well, I don't know, even when I'm preaching, I still miss Pastor Mike's great teaching. He's such an awesome, awesome man of God, and I just respect him and Liz uh, so much. But I tell you what, I really, really admire uh, so much about uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Liz, and that's their kids. You know, I don't know if you've been watching, but those kids are just doing amazing things, and you know, we just need to really keep lifting up our pastors lift up their family, really believe for great things for them because they all have such an awesome future together. Well, listen, a couple of weeks ago, I had a week of culture. So it's nice to get a good culture shock, isn't it? Get fed a little bit of, you know, what's happening out there in the arts and the movies. So uh, I knew I'd, I had to preach about a movie. So I went to the movies and I saw a movie called Solo, a Star Wars story. And, uh, and uh, the, the, the title's up there. It was a great story. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that and really inspiring for me. One of the things I learned years ago, I used to read lots and lots of books. And I like reading stories about people. And so, you know, when you read a book, it might take you a week or it might take six weeks or whatever. But, you know, as I got a little bit older, I realized if there was a really good book, you know, somebody's going to invest millions of dollars and make a movie. And then instead of taking six weeks to read a book, you can watch a movie in an hour and a half or two hours. So I shortcut it all. So I've been dedicating a lot of my life to just watching movies. And uh, only the good ones, you know, the great stories. But uh, it's just a little tip that might help you. And so I saw the solo, the, the Star Wars story. And then my daughter was over from Melbourne and, and she's into the arts. And she said, oh, look, I, I really want to go to the Auckland Art Gallery. And I said, well, honey, I'll come with you. And we went and we had lunch together and went in on the ferry uh, in, into Auckland and into the Art Gallery. And as I was going through, we went into an exhibition of Colin McCann's paintings. And he did an amazing painting about the death and the crucifixion, the, de the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It takes up a whole wall. He's a great painter with, with a lot of uh, religious imagery that, uh, out of the Word of God. And I was, that was one of his paintings. It's just called One. A bit of a clue, isn't it, really, actually, when you look at it, it probably is called One. But when I saw it, and, and I'd just seen the movie Solo, I thought, that's exactly the image I want to present this morning to you. You see, in one place, there's the number one just standing up tall and strong. And, you know, that's how we need to be. That's how God wants us to be as individuals that know who we are. And we stand tall and we're confident. And we present ourselves for who we are. But, you know, life bashes us around sometimes. Circumstances, people say things. And it takes away some of the edge, some of the confidence that we have, and, and so we start to slide down a bit. You know, the one drops a little bit. We become a little bit less confident, and, you know, if things get worse, we come down even further, and I think that's what Colin is trying to draw out in this painting, and one and one becomes one and becomes a bit lower and a bit less unsure and a bit less confident and not fulfilling God's purpose until it almost drops off the end as only. So... I got a lot out of that. You're going to see that slide all the way through uh, my message this morning. But that's what I 
pick up from it. You know, God wants us to be a people that know who we are and stand up strong. We're going to see a movie clip in a few minutes about from Solo, and it's the story of those who know the Star Wars uh, movie, movies, all, all the different series that have come out, then you'll know Han Solo is one of the heroes uh, in the story and, and fighting the evil empire. And uh, this particular movie, which is directed by uh, Ron Howard and uh, picks up on George Lucas's character of Han Solo, and it tells some of the background of where he came from. And it's quite intriguing because... You know, one of the things I like about, about uh, the Star Wars movies is this, is that George Lucas was brought up a Methodist. And you see in all of his movies, you see the biblical themes that come out. You see the evil empire, and we know we live in a world where there's a lot of evil and there is an evil empire. And then the heroes that fight against the evil empire, they're not like the Marvel Comics heroes that all have superpowers and zap things and fly and be, explode into uh, huge green men. They're just ordinary people like you and me. And you sort of look at them and then you see the power of the evil empire and you think, well, what difference can that make? And that's exactly what we pick up from uh, Han's story. Here's another thing I found out about this particular movie, it's the sixth most expensive movie ever made. It's amazing. When I read that, because I'd already seen the movie, I thought, how could they spend so much money and make spaceships look like junk and rubbish? It's just like, really? They spent that amount of money to make this movie? That's absolutely fantastic, because if you've seen the Star Wars movie, you'll probably agree with me that a lot of the spaceships they're flying look like they're going to fall to bits at any moment if something goes wrong. But you see the young Solo, young Han, and he's brought up in a slave state, desiring freedom. His father was an engineer of uh, spaceships, and, and uh, Han, as a young boy, was allowed to drive some of them. And in his heart, he just had a burning desire to be a pilot. But he didn't want to just be any pilot. He wanted to be the best pilot in the whole galaxy. This was his burning ambition. But he was a slave, and he was in a slave state. He had no resources, he had no money, he had no influential friends, he had no way of progressing the world. The only way he could do was to escape, and so he makes his way, he makes his escape. But as he's passing through the border, he comes to the customs, and the customs uh, take a, want to register him because he's coming into the empire, the galactic empire. And so the guard says, what's your name? He said, Han. He said, the guard says, well, no, hold on. What, what's your name? Like your whole name, your family name? He said, oh, I haven't got a family. He says, well, well, what have you got? He said, well, I've got no one. See, he's only one. He's just one person, a slave. He's got no resources or anything else. What difference? can someone like that make in the world? And you know, every one of us are individuals. You know, we can be the one that stands tall, or we can give way a little bit about who we are, our faith, what we carry, and who God wants us to be so easily. But the guard says this, so you've got no bone. He says, I know, solo, hand solo, solo, you're on your own. 
and he found his way in. And so the story started. He's alone in the world, but he demonstrates this reality that only is all you need. Okay, we're going to see the trailer, and so it's just a few action clips from the movie. scams on the street since I was 10. I was kicked out of the flight academy for having a mind of my own. Well, we could listen to it. I've been running scams on the street since I was 10. That's all right. Tell us if it comes. We could do it later. Anyway, he's been running scams since he was a kid. <laughs> that shows some of his background anyway, doesn't it? Where he's coming from. But you know, the story demonstrates this reality that the only, only one is all that you need. You know, the only that we need, that you need in your life is Jesus. Only Jesus and the Holy Spirit working in your life to stand up to be the person that God wants you to be. And not only is he the one that you need, but you know, you are the only that God needs to fulfill his purpose. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and he wants to fulfill that. You know, today I'm just going to go through some of the people in the Bible that some of the greatest mistakes that people have had in judging who people are, making wrong assessments. You know, even Jesus, after his baptism, he went back to his hometown after going around Canaan, around Galilee, and uh, healing people, preaching to so many people, telling the good news. But, you know, he went back to his hometown. And the people looked at him from the town as he was speaking in the synagogue. And they were amazed at the incredible teaching that he was giving. But, you know, they knew who Jesus was. They knew him as Mary's son. They, they'd seen him grow up in the, in the village. They'd seen his brothers and sisters, the four brothers, and we're not sure how many sisters. We knew the whole family, and they said things like this. They said they were amazed. Where did he get these things? Where's this wisdom that's been given to him? Isn't this the carpenter? They were looking at Jesus in the eyes of what they knew in their experience. What they weren't looking at was that Jesus was the anointed one. When he was baptized at 30 years of age, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And his ministry, the purpose for coming to this planet, was transformed and came into being. And he became the Messiah, the one sent from God. But the people that were looking at him, you know, sometimes people like to put labels on us. They like to think about, well, you're a builder or... Uh, you're a nurse or, or you're a teacher or what, and that's how they like it because it's sort of tidy and it sums people up into little boxes. But you know, we are teachers and we are nurses and we are business people and we are students, but we're also filled with the Holy Spirit. We have another dimension. We have a purpose to fulfill and to fulfill the destiny that God has for us. You know, Jesus said to wait till you're filled with the Holy Spirit to his disciples. 
and his disciples went out in the power of the Spirit, anointed by God and transformed from the inside. You know, our real ministry, our influencing of people like David so uh, shared so well earlier about just setting aside one person that he felt that God had given him a prescient to minister to and to witness to. You know, it's learning to respond to those promptings of the Holy Spirit that we can fulfill what God has called us to be. You know, the Bible is full of examples where people were underestimated because people saw them as they were or they knew their background, but they didn't realize the potential that was inside their life in the same way that the people from Nazareth looked at Jesus but couldn't break through the barrier of being a kid in the town and a carpenter to recognizing the anointing on the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said he was amazed at their lack of faith and he could only do a few miracles there. You know, only a boy, only a boy called David, and we know the story so well, we've probably heard it so many times of his battle against Goliath. But you know, the interesting thing with David is this, is that when he came to where the battlefield was and he heard Goliath come out, that there was nobody in the whole Israeli army that would stand up and respond to the challenge. That's what amazed him because he had a heart for God. He knew his God and he knew God's power and he was expecting people to be running to the challenge. And when nobody would, he went to King Saul. Now, King Saul was the tallest man in Israel. He was head and shoulders above the rest of the army. You know, he was probably the one that should have gone out to the battle. And David comes, a young boy, probably about 17 years of age, just a teenager he was. And he comes to King Saul. And he says to Saul, he said, don't worry about the Philistine. I will go and fight him. Now, the interesting thing with David is this, is I don't believe David, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says David was tall or that he stood out because of his appearance or looks. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you find, you know, the tribe of Judah that he came from, you know, heaps of them are just short people. And you think of this young boy, this young teenager, probably short, not standing out any more than anybody else, going to the king saying, don't worry about it, I'll go and fight him. And Saul is the biggest man in there. This is what Saul said to him. He said, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. You're only a boy. You're only a boy. What can you do? What can you do? And David had to convince him of what he could do to a lion, what he could do to a bear, what he could do to that big head standing on the shoulders of that giant of a man that was championing the Philistines. When David went out there, the Philistine looked at him and looked at him again, and he was shocked. And then it says he sneered at him in contempt at this red-faced boy. He says, am I a dog that you've come out here with me, at me with a stick? He was shocked, and he started to curse him. It wasn't just his ability to fight, but he was bringing all the powers of witchcraft that he could into the battle. But David knew he was. He could stand up. He wasn't 
backing down. He wasn't afraid. He knew his God, and he stood firmly uh, in the name of the Lord. And he said, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defined. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I'll kill you and cut off your head. Well, he was definite, wasn't he, about it. And we know how he took him down. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone. He didn't have a sword. He had to use Goliath's sword. Chopped his head off. Job was done. Battle was won. Israeli army took over and won the battle. Only a boy. Only a girl. What can a young teenage girl do to make a difference to Israel's history? What can she do? Not only that, but this girl had been taken captive. The Syrian army had come in and invaded Israel, won many victories. People had been killed. Houses had been burned. Flocks had been taken. And amongst the captives who were taken was this young girl. We don't know what happened to her parents. Probably her parents were killed. She probably saw what was happening. She was probably exposed to things no young girl should ever be exposed to. And she went through all the trauma, taken captive. And then she was given to Naaman's wife to be her maid and to look after her. But you know, there was something about this girl that was so special. There was something about the love of God that was in her heart that had transformed her life when she was a young child. All the things that her parents had influenced and taught her. Things she had learned in the synagogues about the love of God. And there was a transforming power at work in her life. And despite everything she went through, she went and she served her mistress and she served him well. And time went by, she, the wounds in her life were healed. And let me just say something about the wounds and the pains that happen in life and traumas that people go through. Because people say things like, well, time heals all wounds. You know, time doesn't heal wounds. I know people that for years something has happened way back, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And when it's brought up, the pain is just as real as it was when that event happened way back there. You know what heals hurts? God heals hurts. Not time. God is the healer. And he can heal any traumas or pain that you've, been, that you've gone through. It'll take time and it's a process. But it's God who does the healing. And this little girl knew the love of God in her heart. The love of God became greater than her hurts. And she started to pray for a mistress and for a master. A master was the commander of the Syrian army, army that had created all the pain. But he developed leprosy. He had a death sentence written over him. And it moved her heart and she prayed. And one day the opportunity came and she went to her mistress and she said, oh, if only, if only my master would go and see the prophet in Israel. He'd be healed. God would heal him. And, the, and, the, and her mistress went to her husband, said what the little girl said. And then Naaman went to the king. And the king sent a letter to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel thought he's trying to create a fight. I can't heal him. How can this happen? But Elisha heard about it and said, send him to me. And so Naaman went to uh, uh, Elisha. Elisha didn't even bother answering the door. You know, Naaman was a proud 
army commander, a, a, a victorious soldier in many battles. But Elisha didn't even answer the door. He just sent his servant. said, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman was so angry. You know, it just bettered his pride. You know, so many times pride can stop us from entering into the purposes of God. We need to humble ourselves. And Naaman rode off in a half. And some, some of his friends caught up with him and said, you know, if he'd asked you to do something really difficult, wouldn't you have done it? And so he went and washed himself, bathed in the Jordan River. Six times he went down, he came up, no change. Seven times he came up and he was totally healed. Not only was he healed, but he put his faith in God. And he went back and there was peace between Israel and Syria while he was the leader of the armies. Only a girl. What difference could a girl make? What difference can a boy make? I remember... Many years ago at uh, Sweetwater, some of you have a long memory, might remember that they used to have, it was a rock festival. And, uh, and so, you know, the thousands of people would go to it. And, uh, and it was over a, a long weekend. And we had a Christian tent that we set up and Bill Sabrisky and Eddie Cairns and different people were speaking at it. And some of we took um, members from our church to be witnesses and I was heading up one of the evangelism teams. And my daughter came, Jenny, and uh, another young guy, just 16, both in their last year of high school. And uh, they came out on, on the team. And I said, well, okay, but you've got to stick close to me if you're going to be doing witnessing. Because, I mean, it was a, a vile place. Honestly, it was a terrible, terrible, they called it sweet waters. It was bitter waters. It was horrible. And uh, the gangs were there going around and there were sort of tracks all through you know where, where the people were camped and, and to go to the different venues where the different bands would be playing and so we just positioned ourselves on, on the corner and, and we'd preach and witness to people and, uh, and, and so I gave Jenny and, and Roger they wanted to do their share of, of witnessing as well so they'd be out there preaching you know I mean I'm so proud of my kids it's just absolutely amazing and anyway this time about six Big mob guys, mongrel mob guys, mean-looking dudes too, big, big fellas. They, they, came, they were walking along, and so my Jenny, you know, is just small and blonde and, and 16, and, and, and she's preaching, you know, with fire. I mean, she could preach her. She could preach it up, and she's coming. And these six guys just come and lean over like this, you know, like to intimidate her, like, what are you saying, girl? What do you think you got to say to us? I tell you what, I was standing close by. I think I took a step closer, and then I thought, hold on, I just better watch what happens here, because she was doing pretty good. Wow, she was at it, man. She was preaching. If you didn't give your life to Jesus, you're going to hell. You need to get your life sorted out. I tell you what, she didn't stop, and in the end, you know, they sort of ended up giving up and just laughing and, and, and moving on, and, 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 and it, it was great. But only a boy, you know, only a girl. She did things and said things I couldn't have done and influenced people that I couldn't have influenced or reached. And the fact of who she was and where she was at, don't ever write yourself off because you're too young or you're too old or there's some other thing about you. Only a woman. You know, there's a great story of... 
uh, 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 the king of uh, the Canaanite king did battle against Israel for 20 years. They would come in and they would just take everything they could from the land. They would wreak havoc and uh, they would kill people. They would take flocks. They would do whatever they wanted to do. And this went on for 20 years. But God rose up a woman commander, a woman called Deborah, and uh, with Barak, she led the army out and defeated Sisera's uh, whole army. And they won the battle. But the trouble is, Sisera escaped. The commander of the army escaped on foot. And he got away from them. And everybody knew that if he got back to his own kingdom, well, then he could raise up another army and be back again the next year to do the same thing again. They had to capture him. They had to kill him. They had to get rid of him. But, you know, he was escaping. And he got away from Barak and the other soldiers and he was on the run, and he was worn out. He was battle-weary. He was exhausted. He was on foot. And then in the distance, he saw some Bedouin tents. And as he got closer, he saw that it was the tent of Heba, and he knew that tribe. And so he went there for refuge. But he made a big mistake in his estimation, because as he got closer, he saw there were the tents of Heba's tribe. But there was the red tent of Jael, the wife of Heba. You see, if he had gone to the Bedouin chief's tent and he'd been accepted and been offered food, he would have come under the protection and the covering of the chief of the tribe. And he would have remained under that covering for several days. That's just a part of the Eastern uh, tradition and hospitality and their care and for each other. But instead, as he got closer, he had another thought. He wasn't sure how he'd be received. But he thought, I know what I'll do. There's the red tent. That's the, the, the wife of the chief. I'll go there. She's only a woman. I'll go there. I'll be safe. No matter whether they want me or don't want me, I'm going to be safe in that place. And so he went to the tent of Jael. But Jael knew everything that had been happening for the last 20 years. She'd heard the reports. She knew the pain and misery that this man had brought upon Israel year after year after year. When, they, when she saw him on foot in the condition he was in, she, she realized the army had been defeated. So she stood at the door of a tent and he said, bring me some water. Sounds like a bloke, doesn't it? Sounds like an army commander. Sounds like a rough old soldier. Bring me some water. And uh, she brought him some milk. And he said, I'm going to have a rest now. Just stand at the door. Have you ever been talked like that by anybody? Bosses? People? No, of course you haven't. <laughs> Better not get sidetracked. But that was the attitude. Okay. See, he underestimated what he was doing and where he was going. He should have gone to the chief. He should have done it right. And he would have been protected. But instead, he thought, no, she's only a woman. I'll be safe here. And so he goes, and he falls into a deep sleep. Well, J.L. could cook food, and she could do all sorts of things that wives would do, look after the children, look after the herds, cook meals, do the washing. But, you know, she was a Bedouin, and she knew how to pitch a tent so that when the desert winds came, it wouldn't blow over. She knew how to put those pegs into rocky ground. And she realized that this was an opportunity that had come across a way 
that she had to make a difference for the whole nation of Israel. And so she got one of those tent pegs, but a little bit gruesome, and a hammer, but she did a good job. She cleaned up the army, the part of the army that hadn't been finished off by Israel. But here's an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, it wasn't a great soldier. It wasn't a warrior. It wasn't even a team of people. It was a woman where the opportunity came and she knew what she needed to do and and to enforce what was happening at that time in her life. It's interesting. Sometimes we can do things that influence people. You know, what is it that's in your hand? Just the other, about a month ago, Maggie and I called in on, on Maggie's twin sister. And, uh, and, and she had knitted us a, a cap and a scarf, which was really cool, you know. But the other day, just this week, I was out fishing. It was freezing out there. And, uh, but, you know, and it was the first time I'd used that hat and that scarf. I tell you what, while I was out there fishing, I was having lovely warm memories of my sister-in-law, thinking, thank you for what you've done. You know, when you do something for somebody and you just feel motivated to do it, it might be to give a meal to your neighbor, it might be to cook a cake, it might be to knit a scarf and a cap, it might be anything. You know, the memory of that has a positive influence on the person that you give it to. What about only a man? Only a man. We're having a look at Stephen. Stephen was a popular guy in church. He was, became one of the deacons. He was appointed by the apostles to, to serve food. And so in the context of things, it was like he was somebody who worked with the food bank or delivering parcels of food to people. I guess in the context of our church, it would be somebody on the cafe team. And so in the cafe, it wouldn't be the cook because he wasn't good at cooking, but he could serve tables. But you know, he not only served food to people, he had a desire in his heart to be an evangelist, to be a preacher. And, you know, he would go to people's houses and take the food parcels to them. And, you know, one day somebody said to him, well, look, you know, somebody's uh, sick. My, my daughter's sick. Would you pray for them? Stephen went and prayed, and the daughter was healed. And then the next time he came back to that house, she gathered other neighbors together. And, you know, he would pray for people, and people would be healed. He was somebody that was popular. He would take Bible studies and he would lead people into the things of God. He became a street preacher and went out and and preached in the streets. It says, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. He performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. That's not bad for somebody on the cafe team, is it? You know, don't allow your job the work that you do or the way that you serve, whether it's in church or in any volunteer capacity, limit who you are as a person. You know, you have Jesus Christ living in your life. The Holy Spirit is in you with all of his gifts. And, you know, God wants us to be a people that in our workplace, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, that we are the person God wants us to be. Not bad for a bloke. And, you know, Stephen became the first martyr. And I want you just to draw attention to what happened here because he was taken because of the power of his preaching to the Jewish council. And they got so angry at what he was saying about Jesus and the healings and the 
miracles and their need of a Savior, who was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that they stoned him. Stephen became the first martyr in the early church in all of our history. But as they were stoning him, it says that he looked up into heaven. And as he looked into heaven, he said, I can see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. That was an amazing vision that he saw. It infuriated the others and caused them to stone him and, and, uh, right then and there. But, you know, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and I was meditating about this because the Bible tells us Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, what was it that caused Jesus to stand to his feet? Because I think there are some things that make Jesus stand to his feet and applaud what is going on down here in our lives. I think sometimes Jesus sits on that throne and he's utterly bored. He sees crowds gathering in Rome and somebody popping out a window and speaking in Latin that nobody can understand because nobody speaks that anymore. He sees different things happening. He sees people giving sort of rotated messages and wearing funny gowns and things like that. I don't think that causes Jesus to stand to his feet. But I tell you, there are some things that do cause him to stand at his feet. Jesus said himself, a time is coming when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers that God seeks. You know, when we start touching the anointing and, and, and reaching out and worship and praise to God, that's what causes Jesus to get excited about what is happening. Only a pensioner. How about that? What can a pensioner do? Could he make a difference? You know, we're looking at Caleb. Caleb was an amazing example. But I was reading up about this. You know, at 66 years of age, Winston Churchill became the Prime Minister of Great Britain in 1940, when the start of the Second World War. The greatest leader, I guess, in, in modern history, taking the world as we know it through the darkest period of history. 66 years. But surely he's just a pensioner. You know, what, what difference could he make? We, you know, our in prime minister now, acting prime minister anyway. Do you know how old he is? 73. Good old Winston, eh? Another Winston. Not quite the same, probably. But the same first name anyway. But, you know, Caleb is just such a great example. For five years, him and Joshua were the were the two great leaders as they came in and campaigned through Canaan. And for five years, he fought every battle that every family went and every tribe was engaged in. And he helped all the younger people find their position, find a place for their families, find a city, find a village, until right through all of Israel that was overcome, he had taken his place until there was nowhere for them to go. And then, after five years of fighting battles for everybody else, Caleb comes to Joshua, and he says to Joshua, Joshua, remember, remember the promise. Remember the promise that God gave to me. And Moses said to me, and where God said, the land of Canaan in which you were just walking, this place where we are now, this place, looking up to Hebron, this is the place where we were walking. Remember, God promised it to me. Now I'm asking you to release me from all of my responsibilities to everyone else 
that I can take the land that God has promised to me. He said this, today I am 85 years old. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. Give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. So the descendants of Anak were living there with great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, it's a whole tribe of giants still living on the land. But he said, if the Lord's with me, I'm going to take them down. David, as a teenager, didn't care about the size of Goliath. He said, if God's with me, I'm going to win this. Jael, you know, the opportunity came, and she didn't back off from who she was as a woman, caring about what had happened over the last 20 years, the pain and misery that this man had caused to so many people. And she took the opportunity. Stephen, as a person could get out there and, and preach to the crowds and see people healed and do an amazing thing. And here's Caleb in these years saying, if the Lord is with me, I will take the land and drive them out. So Joshua blessed him. And it says Hebron still belongs to his descendants. You know, the battles we, we face and the life that we live is not just about us. It's about who we are. You know, if you have family, your kids see the sort of Christianity that you're living out. They see whether it's genuine or whether you're just dragged along to church and you're not a willing partner in following God. You know, God wants us to be the number one that stands up, fully aware who we are, fully aware that he's got a purposes to fill, fill in our life. You know, only one is really about only you. Only you with the Holy Spirit in your life. What can you accomplish? What can you do? What are the opportunities that present themselves to you? It doesn't matter who you are, where you are in life. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager. It doesn't matter if you're at university. It doesn't matter if you've got a business. It doesn't matter if you're a housewife. It doesn't matter what sort of role you have in life and certainly not what stage you're at in life. You know, this is the day. These are the opportunities that you and I have to be the people that God wants us to be. And I just want to leave with this one thought today. What are the promises that God's spoken over your life? You know, Caleb had to wait 45 years. And then he stood up and he said, here I am. I'm only 85. I'm just as strong as I was back then when we first came into the land. Here I am. I'm going to go and go for it. What are the promises that are not fulfilled in your life? Is it to do a study course? Is it to do a missions trip? Is it to respond to the call of God and be fully committed? Maybe go to a to, to the ELC and, and do some study and, and follow the course of internship and come into ministry. It might be to step out into some area of business. Whatever God's calling you to be, what is that thing that's stirring in your heart that you know that you'll never really be fulfilled or satisfied unless you take the step and stand up? Can we all just close our eyes just for a moment? You know, I just want to challenge you today. Maybe some of you are here. Somebody has brought you along to church, but you've never committed yourself to Jesus Christ. It's Jesus that makes the difference. He is the only that you need in your life. If you've never made that decision, 
then I'm going to ask now while every eye is closed, if you would just indicate by raising your hand, because I'd love to pray with you. Would you just do that where you are right now? If you've never given your life to Christ, or you know you're not fully committed, but you want to get back on track with Him, would you raise your hand right now? Thank you. Awesome. Then my challenge to everyone here is this. That call of God, you know, that stirring in your spirit, that thing that's not fulfilled because you want to see more. You want to fulfill who, you, who that is that God has called you to be. Would you just stand right now wherever you are? And we're just going to close in prayer. You know, you've got a calling to be still to fulfill. There's more to happen. And you know you want to step right into it. Just stand up where you are. Just right now. That's fantastic. We do that. Awesome. Thank you, Father God. Lord, you're awesome. We love you, Lord God. We praise you. Hallelujah. Father God, I just thank you, Father God, for your mighty word. I thank you for the power, Lord, of being one, one with you. Lord, knowing your call, knowing your direction. Father God, I just pray for every person that senses that call here this morning. Lord, that you'll affirm and you'll confirm. Lord God, your will and your purposes in the mighty name of Jesus.